listener production. Australia Today's Morning Agenda with Natasha Belling. Welcome to another edition of the Summer Series of Morning Agenda, where we take a look back at the major issues that have set the agenda in 2022. Today, we're looking at the broken healthcare system in regional and rural Australia. Renowned Australian journalist Liz Hayes has been at the forefront for new calls for immediate action for the rural health system after the death of her dad, Brian, in 2019. He died after a catastrophic stroke at Manning Base Hospital in Taree in northern New South Wales after not being administered his prescribed anti-stroke tablets for eight days. Liz joined ABC journalist Jamel Wells, who also lost her dad after horrific treatment at Dubbo Base Hospital, to expose more stories of mistreatment and preventable deaths in rural and regional hospitals. Their work helped spark a New South Wales parliamentary inquiry with the state government promising to support or support in principle 41 of the 44 recommendations. But Liz says she's concerned nothing will change and the healthcare system in rural Australia is about politics and not about delivering healthcare and saving lives. The passionate journalist says the system must be fixed as millions of Australians living in rural and regional areas deserve so much better. And Liz Hayes joins us for this special edition of Morning Agenda. Liz, thanks so much for joining us and shining a light on this really important issue. Well, it's my pleasure, Tash. Now, tell us about your beautiful dad, Brian. He passed away in 2019 from a catastrophic stroke at Manning Base Hospital in Taree. Tell us exactly what happened to your beautiful dad, Brian. My dad had um, been... Um he had been to hospital because he had an infection. It turned out he had an infection, uh, which wasn't picked up earlier. He was treated quite well, actually, although there were mistakes. Let's start at the beginning. There were mistakes when he arrived at the um, emergency department at the hospital. They overdosed him on medication, mm-hmm. but it was sorted. Uh, he then recovered. He was given antibiotics, and he did recover. Um, but his doctor asked, would it be okay if he could just uh, rest? probably recuperate a bit more um, in the local private hospital, which is affiliated. And it was there that the world fell over. My father was recovering. He was doing well, we thought. But then he had this dreadful stroke and we found out that he had not been given any of his medication, which was stroke prevention medication in all the time, the eight days he was there. And it was hard to believe that that could happen. There were many other mistakes that were made as well, which compounded the the situation, but it was an irretrievable situation for my father. And um, it's after the event, you know, it was while I was looking at his hospital notes that I found, found out the truth. The doctor who had been on at the hospital um, and had bundied off basically um, was made aware that this had happened. And she did come to the hospital and advised staff of the mistake, but all too late, really. And, um, you know, I, it, I still stumble for words mm. on this because um, it's just hard to believe that something so basic could go wrong. I was reading an article when you spoke about your beautiful dad and what had happened, Liz, and there's a quote that you said, human error is always going to be there, but it goes beyond human error. 
We have hospitals without doctors, nurses walking away, and we have paramedics that are saying they're just taxi drivers. If anything should be in ICU, it's the rural health system. Yes, it's true. Um, Once I started looking into this, because I I guess I couldn't believe so many basic things could occur. Mm -hmm. And it started with me deciding there was no point in personalising it with this particular doctor. I had to understand what had gone wrong. And when I looked into it, I realised what the, the real issues are. This doctor was just literally run off her feet. Um, a one doctor in a, a hospital with 80-odd beds and who wasn't there at night. And, um, and, and so I just looked at the system and it was the same in the public system as well. And then I found that it was the same in just about every country town hospital known to man, that these issues have been there and been there for a long time. And much of it is about staffing and then about resources. And then it's about an attitude, I think. But the staff by and large, are the ones who come to me and say, can you help me? Can No one listens to us. Or they feel as though they are their jobs are under threat if they speak up. And some of them had been warned and in fact still being warned to this day that they're not to speak to the media. So it's then that you start to understand that this is a cruel joke. It's To me, it's, it's a terrible thing. Uh, And it's been known for so long. I think that's the other thing that really got to me was that this is not news. It's news to me at Mm. the time, but it's not news. This has been going on for a very long time. And um, Julian Skinner, who was a former health minister some 10 years ago, was trying to get something done, but nothing happened. And why not? It's a shocking question to ask because in all of this, There are these preventable deaths occurring. There are these terrible mistakes occurring. I mean, it's just horrendous. Yeah, you make a great point, Liz. Uh, I've lived in regional Australia. I was born and raised in Mudgee in the Central West. I have many relatives and family and friends that are still in regional areas and they tell me every week of horrifying stories that are still continuing today. And your incredible work, along with prominent ABC journalist Jamel Wells, actually led to a parliamentary inquiry in New South Wales. And this is not just a problem... Regional New South Wales, this is seen right across our country in many rural and regional areas. Were you shocked by what the parliamentary inquiry uncovered? Not really. Um, I'll tell you what I was shocked about, that so many people were prepared to come forward because they had been battered uh, Mm. over such a long period of time and they'd lost faith and trust. But I was so heartened but shocked by the number of missions and the number of people who wanted to speak up. There are equal numbers who just still felt fearful or just believed it didn't matter. Nobody cared anymore. So they didn't. They thought my voice doesn't count. But what actually came out didn't surprise me because a lot of that I had heard, a lot of that I'd been told. I was just mortified that a parliamentary inquiry needed to hear it again. Lisa, we've had the parliamentary inquiry. We've heard some shocking stories, some of them being cancer, being misdiagnosed. We've had awful stories of horrific fatal accidents happening during simple surgeries in many areas. We've had the parliamentary inquiry. What's happening now? Do you genuinely believe we'll see the New South Wales government adopt the recommendations and we'll finally see some action? Well, no, I don't have great 
faith and um, I think one of the things that's made me very angry about all of this is politicising of health. Mm. I mean, this is a life and death um, subject. I think what I hate most is that politicians are wrangling over what is the truth. Bronnie Taylor, who is the relevant minister, um, when the findings came out, um, issued a public uh, a media release which said basically that a survey had shown that, you know, I think something like 95, 96% of people who were surveyed felt that the health services they were receiving in country towns was good or very good. I just felt it was a, it, it wasn't good enough. That told me that there was not a fulsome commitment to making a change. It told me that there was a belief that things weren't too bad, really, and the rest of us were all whingers, clearly. And I think that was an insulting media release to put out because of what we had heard and the number of people who'd come forward. But I don't believe change will come like the change we need unless governments are committed. That takes the federal government as well as the state government. But this state government um, has an election looming. This state government should know that health isn't something to be playing with. And if they want to politicise it, then it might be the subject that that they should be worried about. Yeah, I mean, incredibly well said, Liz. For you, interesting that you mentioned earlier about staff feeling fearful of talking, you know, or speaking out about what's going on in the hospitals. I've been to many scenarios in an emergency department or I've seen something happen, especially in regional areas. And when I talk to one of the staff members in confidence, they basically say, oh, we, we, we can never talk publicly and we'll lose our jobs if we do. That's incredibly concerning. That to me points to the fact of a culture of fear and cover-ups. Oh, absolutely. I'm still getting letters now, still, today, from people working in the system who want me to know uh, what is going on in their particular hospital or in their particular area. And it is always, you know, under the cover of darkness, it is always with, you You know, I, I can't, I have to remain anonymous. Mm. And as you know, as a journalist, that makes life pretty difficult. I have literally met in car parks because car parks are the one thing that, you know, the department seems to build. <laughs> but, you know, I feel like I'm in a Watergate scenario sometimes. There are doctors, nurses, paramedics, patients, all of whom are speaking to me. The people who don't want to hear this are the people who are in charge, the managers. Mm. They're usually um, executives and they're the ones who seem to me to be protecting a lot of their asses, and that's what they are, protecting themselves. I find that often what they're doing is trying to justify the scenario. I mean, the area I come from, the um, greater, the Hunter New mm. England area, that's a t- over $2 bil- billion with a B budget for health. That's a lot of money. And you start saying to yourself, money may not in fact be the problem here. It's how it's spent. Who's getting it? Where's it going and why? It's a power game. Money is a power game within the health system. And there are all these others who have vested interests. And of course, then politicians come in and swim in that as well. I'm not convinced it's about, you know, billions of more dollars. I'm convinced somebody needs to sit down and shine a light on who's getting what and why. 
a very good friend of mine, Liz, and you make a great point there, is a nurse and she unfortunately left a job she loved because of the pressures and the things that she'd seen during her career. She said to me that exactly what you've said, it's about the misuse of funds and it's a lot of highly paid executives in bureaucratic roles, five or six people that years ago, that money would have been put into frontline workers. So it's more about the misuse of funds and not the money going to where it's needed. Oh, I think um, <laughs> my colleague Jamil Wells said she almost sort of vomited when she noticed that you know the, a vast investment had gone into a car park um, outside the Dubbo Hospital where her father's um, scenario took place. Um, I don't see the books. I am not in a position to be able to say definitively, well, that's a misspent amount of mm. money. But I can tell you anecdotally, there's a particular um, department that was built at a, a local hospital and it was so poorly designed, they couldn't use it. It was for x-rays and whatnot. And they couldn't get the beds through. And it was like, who thought this was a great idea? It's all designed in the most peculiar way. It's piecemeal as well. So, yes, it seems to me that um, if, if ever there was a, a light to be shone, it might be in, in the finance area. What is happening with the money? Who's getting it? I hear anecdotally that people are employed, but they haven't, in, like teams of people in the health department are working, but they've only got about two hours of work to do, but nobody's going to say, oh, gee, I don't know if we need this many people. These are all anecdotal stories. I can't say definitively where the truth lies, but I can't imagine that every cent that is being spent is for the benefit of the patient. And doctors are the ones who tell me that. Staff tell me that. Liz, my heart breaks because as you've experienced with losing your beautiful dad, Brian, many of us have had loved ones or family and friends that have been the result of catastrophic mistakes or incidences at local hospitals or emergency departments. These people that live in rural and regional areas of our country deserve the basic right of getting adequate medical care. What would you say to people that say this can't be fixed? <laughs> it's just not true. Of course it can be fixed and it has to be fixed and it should be fixed and it should have been fixed and it should have been fixed a long time ago. If you don't have the will to fix it, that means you do not care. That, I believe, is the situation. Unless you care enough, it won't be done. And politicians, given they're the ones who ultimately do respond to the pain of uh, voters, need to realise this is a life and death situation. And if they don't do something, then I can only say that they don't care. And I think voters and I think anybody who cares about their loved ones or their own health, you know, woe betide anybody who has a nasty accident in the country, I'm not sure what that will mean. I think that, um, frankly, it's an attitude and, and that has to change. And I think people, I can understand why rural people don't speak up in the manner that they should, in my opinion. And it's because they feel like no one cares. Mm -hmm. They feel like their voice doesn't matter. They feel undervalued. And they're usually these amazingly hardworking people who just get on with it. But that's still not good enough. And of course it can be fixed. It has to be fixed. 
I think that's the way you have to approach it. It has to be fixed. Yeah, well said, Liz. And thank you so much for all the incredible work that you're doing. You are completely right. People in regional and rural Australia deserve better and you're part of that important change. Liz Hayes, thanks so much for joining us. Listener.